Welcome to episode 758 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, brought to you by the Play Index at BaseballReference.com. I'm Sam Miller, along with Ben Lindbergh of ESPN. Hi, Ben. Hello. How are you? Peter Gallagher on Good Wife is the best thing in my life. Oh, wait, wait, (laughs) I'm an episode behind. Oh, well, he wasn't in the last episode, which is an even sadder thing. What? You literally respond to, I haven't seen the last episode, with a fact about the episode. That's the most insignificant fact. It's probably insignificant, but you don't know what I'll find significant. And there's always ways that people give away more than they think they're giving away. Eh. I mean, it seems like you're safe. I, I forgot Peter Gallagher was on The Good Wife <laughs> yeah. until you mentioned it. He's been on one episode of The Good Wife, so yeah. not a big deal. Anyway, it's a it's an unusual situation that I'm a week behind, but... I am, so. All right. Any any other good wife talk? Not good wife, but I meant to mention yesterday that I wonder whether future generations will look back at box scores from this World Series and think that Juris Familia was a huge choker. I don't know whether they will or whether... Because of if, the blown saves. But... Yeah, because he blew three saves in one series. And if you actually dig into it, he blue saves in that he played for the Mets, who Daniel Murphy also played for and was bad at defense for, and that was really his only sin. But if you just look at blown saves, he blew a bunch of them. I mean, he did give up a home run to Alex Gordon yes, to, tie, he did. to tie a game. Yes. Which is a pretty big... I mean, I I think that he... Uh, you're right. Familia pitched generally very well. And um, like even the after, if I'm, I hope I'm not confusing games here, but even after Murphy's uh, air, the next ground ball was essentially a weak ground ball that was in the hole. And it's not like Murphy was going to get it or got a glove on it or anything. But I think on that play, I, I would just sort of guess that 20-ish players make that play. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think if the previous error hadn't been made he might have been been playing over differently there so that he yeah. would have made the play and i mean it certainly wasn't hit hard there was in that rally there was one ball hit at all well the sal perez single to right field was the only ball hit at all well against familia uh, and then in game five i'm trying to, to remember but basically he sawed off a batter to get a sort of a weak ground ball to to third and uh, then was dominant after that. So, how did the runner get to third? Ground ball to first, right? That sounds right. Yeah, ground ball to first. It's been uh, two whole days. By, by Moustakis. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, yeah. So, that said, change the order. And let's say that he's got the two blown saves uh, that we just talked about, the defense aided, defense and luck aided blown saves that we just talked about, that will gladly give him no blame whatsoever for. But nonetheless, they're on his on his resume, um, and he's also, I mean, at this point, 
Well, okay, so he's got those two, and then now let's move game one to game five and say that game one was game five and game five was game one. Uh-huh. And the, the Alex Gordon home run then becomes an all-time memorable home run, right? Yeah. It's, not quite, it's not quite Lidge and Pujols mm-hmm. or, or Carter and Williams, but it's not that far in terms of like World Series memorability, memorability and like leverage, championship leverage, and like stunningness and all that. Mm-hmm. Um, so guys have been tarnished for the postseason closer choker reputation for one swing uh, plenty of times. I think Familia's the one big swing was is kind of buried in game one mm-hmm. and also wasn't a walk-off, so that kind of helps. But if it were, uh, if that were the last game, I could see it. Yeah, I could see it sticking to him. Mm-hmm. I'm okay. I'm glad it won't. So he was. He's really good. He's yeah, fun to watch. Yeah, no, he's very good. So he was maybe better than three blown saves suggest, but well, he was definitely not blameless. Yeah, he was. A, he was clearly better than three blown saves suggest. Mm-hmm. Is that that's a that's a record? I assume. I don't know. I wonder what the record for blown saves in an entire postseason is. To be honest, didn't Rivera blow three saves in the 2004? ALCS. So maybe it's three. Postseason. I'm I'm play indexing, Ben. Okay. So we're doing pitching game finder for postseason only, players with most matching games in a season, and the stat I'm uh, the and the decision is blown save. So here we go. You ready? I'm ready. Are you ready? Yes. All right. Uh, the record is Rivera Mitch only blue. Two saves in that series, by the way. But he but did three. blow a save earlier in that yeah, postseason. Three in the postseason. So uh, Mitch Williams blew four in 1993, which is particularly impressive for it being pre-wild card. Yeah. Round. Uh-huh. Uh, Dan Quisenberry blew three in 1980, and Raleigh Eastwick blew three in 1975. But those are, in a way, slightly less interesting because those guys were probably coming in. Like, just I'll check. But, like, I bet Raleigh Eastwick fictional character in a, in a book written about baseball by Matt Christopher. Uh, I bet he was coming in in like the sixth inning. Yeah, so Quisenberry came in in the sixth, the seventh, and the seventh. These were supposed to be three and four inning saves. It's much easier to blow yes. a four inning save when you come in up by one in the sixth. Yeah. Uh, Raleigh Eastwick, fictional character from a baseball book written by Matt Christopher, was, ah, he was the ninth, the ninth, and the eighth. So yeah, fictional Raleigh Eastwick sucked okay. in that series. <laughs> sucked really bad in that series. All right, so he unless it's conceivable he came in with like the bases loaded and like I I, I don't know I don't know anything about Raleigh Eastwick besides his fictionality. Mm-hmm. It's conceivable that he well no there were no loogies then. Let's find out about Raleigh Eastwick for a second. Let's give him a call. Right-handed pitcher. Yeah, it'd be easy to find his. <laughs> yeah, probably it's a lot easier than some of the names we've looked up. Let's go ahead and say Raleigh Eastwick. Yeah, okay. So, Familia tied for second in blown saves in a postseason. Yeah. And he did it all in one series. And some would say the most important of those postseason series. <laughs> yes. Some would argue. Mm-hmm. Raleigh Eastwick was a rookie, by the way, when he did this. And uh, they, you, wow, he was a rookie. 1975, Big Red Machine, blew three saves. I don't know if they were all in the World Series or not, but he blew three saves. I think they were. Yeah, because he didn't, well, he didn't give up a run in the LCS. So he only gave up 
two runs in that entire postseason in seven games, and yet three blown saves, and we're talking about what a choker he must have been. Uh, so he he wasn't. That's why they called him Tough Luck Raleigh. Yeah, Raleigh's Folly. Is that what you would have gone with for your headline? Yeah, probably. Anyway, he was their closer next the next year, though, and was very good as their closer the next year in his second year in the majors. So they were at least smart enough not to hold it against him. All right. I'm happy to hear that. And then he was really bad in the postseason that year, and then he didn't get to close anymore. Forever <laughs> <laughs> again, actually. <laughs> True Raleigh Eastwick story. All right. So I figure we'll talk about Dusty Baker. Okay. The Nationals a couple of days ago seemed like they were all ready to hire Bud Black to be their manager. Bud Black, the recently fired manager of the San Diego Padres, they offered him a contract that he found insulting. Negotiations didn't progress. And so they went to apparently their second choice, Dusty Baker. And Dusty Baker is managing again. Bud Black now appears to be one of the favorites for the Dodgers managerial gig. Um, and But Dusty Baker. Dusty Baker is back in baseball. And uh, I will say that I didn't expect Dusty Baker to be back in baseball. No, neither did I. So let's first talk about Dusty Baker being back in baseball. What what if, if you were, I don't know, trying to write Dusty Baker's bio... Uh, as a manager, what would you highlight at this point? I mean, not what he's accomplished, but like, what is he as a manager? What do you, there's a caricature of him that's pretty badly outdated, but do you have any kind of lingering feelings about how Dusty Baker manages? Well, he seems like he's closer to the old school side of the spectrum, at least in his last job with the Reds. You know, he would hit Zach Cozart second and he would try to talk Joey Votto out of walking and he would say things like on base percentage is good, but RBIs are better, which maybe is just a bad way to say that runs are good. <laughs> run, I mean, runs are good. RBIs are better because they mean that you scored a run and that's good. But if, if he meant as a way to judge players, then that's not such a great statement. So he would say things like that and Obviously, you alluded to his reputation as a pitcher killer, and that is overblown at this point, or at least it seems to be based on his last few years in Cincinnati. But he doesn't strike you as a like great tactician. He just seems like more of a personality manager, which is, I guess, the opposite of what the Nationals just had. Yeah, he he has definitely always had the reputation of being a players manager from from his first year on, um, and I um, I I remember um, Chris Jaffe in his book evaluating baseball's managers, which I think we've alluded to before this specific thing I'm about to say, but um, one of the interesting things he wrote about was that Dusty Baker appeared to be getting worse with age. This book came out about, I don't know, seven years ago, six years ago. And uh, Dusty Baker appeared to be getting worse with age at the time as far as whether his players were outperforming expectations, whether um, he was getting as much contribution from uh, his veterans and so on. And Chris wrote then about how it's uh, perfectly reasonable to assume that a player's manager would have a kind of a steep decline phase in his career as he becomes less and less attuned to the players and to the generation of players. And when Dusty Baker 
uh, took over in 1993 in San Francisco and first got that reputation as a player's manager. Uh, he was a couple years from retirement only. He was 44 years old, which would have made him, you know, a plausible player to have in the in the clubhouse just as far as his generation and his age. Um, and um, so it kind of made sense that he would be able to relate to players back then. Mm-hmm. And as he got older and um, the they you know they all stayed the same uh it became sort of less and less plausible that he would be able to relate to them individually and and i think that it's somewhat significant not just from an age perspective i think that is really significant from an age perspective i i don't i think that generations of men in particular have always had very fraught relationships to each other there's a sort of a story that is told uh, repeatedly throughout history of old men hating young men <laughs> and and perhaps the reverse as well. And um, so there's that. That's always going to be there. But also, I think you could make the case that baseball players, because baseball changed, because the economy of baseball changed, because the media around baseball changed, because all these sort of aspects that make baseball players different than normal lives uh, changed, uh, it's arguable that uh, even if Dusty Baker had stayed 44 for the entire time, that his playing experience and his playing career uh, might have been less and less instructive as to the perspectives of his own players. I don't know that there, I don't, uh, it's just a hypothesis. I'm just saying it's plausible that there is nothing in Dusty Baker's playing career that prepares him to address something like Bryce Harper. Right. And, Sometimes it just seems like guys lose a clubhouse or they don't connect with a clubhouse the same way, and maybe it's not even related to age. Maybe it is, but maybe it's just a different group of guys, or maybe they just get settled in the job and don't have the same energy that they devoted to it when they first started. I don't know what the explanation is with him, but by the time that the Reds let him go, he suddenly had the opposite reputation, or at least when they justified letting him go, Walt Jockety said, if you were around, you kind of saw that it didn't look like players were responding. We felt a new direction, a new voice might be necessary. And they also mentioned that he had had a stroke and that they thought they were concerned about his health and that it would be best he stepped down. So it definitely sounded like old manager in multiple ways. The image I have of Dusty Baker with the Reds more than almost anything else is him sitting behind his desk looking, I don't know, I don't know what he looked, but when, have I even seen this? Is there video of this? I might have actually completely invented this vision in my head, this sight in my head, but of, is this, was he even there? Are you talking talking about the Brandon Phillips? I am, yeah. yeah. I think there was there was video of that. I think the time when Brandon Phillips <laughs> yes. insulted C. Trent Rosecrans and, yes. and, and Dusty Baker did nothing to intervene or discipline him at all. And I think he did smile while that was happening. And I, maybe that is a player's manager thing to do. Maybe that's what a player manager player's manager would do in that situation. But it... You know, I mean, maybe just because we are in clubhouses and write about baseball, and so we identified with the guy who was the victim of that encounter. 
it seemed like a sort of cowardly response. Yeah, I I don't know exactly what the lesson that I, I mean to take out of that. That That is, I bring that up because that's kind of the vision I have of Dusty Baker more than anything else. And it's a, a manager who, I don't know, I, I, I don't think that the, I don't think that this is necessarily the moment where he should be judged as a manager or anything like that. And I don't know that he did anything wrong and I don't know anything about it. I just have this vision of him that is not that compelling. Like he's just a guy who's sitting there trying not to be noticed almost. Like he's trying not to be there. Uh-huh. And there's not, there doesn't strike me as being, there didn't really strike me as being anything there. Uh, anything, like there wasn't a, a, a real player's manager aspect there. There wasn't really a, an authority ma- aspect there. There wasn't really a, a, a anything there. It was just like, oh, Dusty Baker's still in the game yeah. kind of a feeling. And uh, so I don't know. That's a very weird moment to take mm-hmm. uh, somebody's, uh, to base somebody's uh, managerial ability on. And I'm not trying to suggest that uh, that I do. It's just what kind of comes to my mind whenever I think about Dusty Baker these days. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that he generally uh, is a, I, I, I do think he's a, an underrated baseball mind. Um, managers who are players managers, I think, tend to uh, there's they tend to not get enough credit for their baseball acumen. There's a feeling that oh well you can only be one you're one you're one or the other you're a players manager or you're a disciplinarian or you're a tactician. Uh, but in fact there's you know they all pretty much know a lot about baseball and I don't know that there's a huge correlation uh, between what type of personality you are in the clubhouse and whether you're good at baseball. Dusty Baker, uh, as R J Anderson has written did a, a very good job of getting a lot out of his bench, um, especially later, and that's a, an important skill for a manager in the uh, in in the uh, kind of era of versatility that we're in right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's good, um, and uh, you know, never never seemed to have a particularly obvious uh, style of managing that made him outside of the mainstream of managing. So. I think that's all good, uh, or fine. It's all it's all irrelevant, I guess. It's all like normal stuff. Mm-hmm. And he'll never shake the reputation as a guy who destroys pitchers that he got from Kerry Wood and Mark Pryor. But as RJ also showed in his last few years, at least in Cincinnati, his number of starts over a certain pitch count were not way out of line with the league and his average pitch count was not way out of line with the league. So he was basically a normal manager in that respect. Yeah. I think he, I think that he has that reputation largely because he happened to have Kerry Wood and Mark Pryor, two guys mm-hmm. who were both uh, much, uh, there was much more attention on them. Like he essentially got two extremely talented young pitchers in an era where I think almost everybody would have ruined those guys. Because that you know that was how you used pitchers for the most part at the time. He might have been a little bit less cautious than the median, mm-hmm. uh, but I doubt it. And um, if if he doesn't get those two pitchers, we probably don't really notice him, and we're probably ranting about you know I don't know whoever would have had him, Lupinella or Jim Riggleman or Eric Wedge or whatever random manager happened to get two young pitchers ready to break. So Adam Kilgore wrote about this hiring and the non-hiring of Bud Black in the Washington Post, and he made it sound like the learners, the owners of the Nationals, sort of against Mike Rizzo's wishes, are just 
going very cheap with managers, that they have a history of doing this, and that with the previous managers, they had some grounds for doing that, like Matt Williams was a friend of theirs and had never been a manager before, and so maybe you get him at a discount, and then there were you know, interim managers and guys who hadn't managed for a decade, like Davey Johnson, so you could see why maybe you would go kind of cheap with them. But they, if what Kilgore reports here, or the report that he cites, is accurate about what they offered but Black, it's sort of a shockingly low number, like a single year for $1.6 million when the Marlins are giving Don Mattingly four years. Now, that's probably not the best example because the Marlins will just fired on Mattingly after a year anyway, but at least they give him the money. So everyone gets three years at least, it seems, when you start. That's just kind of the going rate, maybe because you want the manager to have some authority in the clubhouse, and if he's a lame duck when he starts, then he doesn't have much of it. So I guess the learners don't believe that managers make much of a difference. It seems like I guess that's their philosophy on managers, that they think they're interchangeable and not worth paying for because they do pay for players they have a fairly high payroll so it's not that they won't spend on anything it's that they won't spend on this yeah they uh uh, i don't know if the jim riggleman example tells us a lot about the learners but it seems kind of like it does remember jim riggleman four years ago uh quitting in the middle of a season uh, in the middle of a you know season for a team that was kind of doing well and on the cusp of getting somewhere and kind of shockingly so it was that was like a big shocking moment where the manager just was like well I quit and <laughs> not for any particular reason that could be discerned except that the Nationals weren't giving him the uh, kind of extra year of contract that as I recall, the extra year of contract that managers all get. I mean, there's there's kind of a, it seems like there's kind of a rule that you get an extra year in your contract uh, that the club will just eat if you suck. Like, they'll just fire you and pay you. But nobody works, hardly anybody works in the last year of their contract. It's all There's always an extra year. Like, you, you get, like, if you sign for this year, you'll get 2016 plus 2017. And then by 2017, they'll add 2018 on. And so you always have this cushion of knowing, like, well, if I get fired, at least I'm going to get I'm going to get paid, and it gives the impression of commitment to you. Mm-hmm. And uh, they wouldn't do that for Riggleman, as I recall, if I recall the details correctly. And uh, it's very weird that they wouldn't do it for Bud Black because, yeah, Bud Black is not a guy who uh, is like desperately trying to get any job in the industry. He's a very well respected manager who just had what eight year career. Uh, with a team and uh, has other teams that are interested in him uh, and that doesn't have to work for the worst uh, contract in the sport. And it sort of feels like there's kind of one of, like you said, basically, there's one of two ways to, to look at this. One is, look, if you want this manager at the rates that managers get paid, I mean, we're not talking about even seventh inning uh, right-handed specialist pay at the rate that managers get paid. You should essentially never ever have a contract dispute with your manager. Like whatever they ask for, yeah, that's fair. They like they don't get paid enough to to you know almost ever lose your guy if you actually really want that guy. 
The other way is to just, you know, you don't have a guy. Like, Bud Black probably is, is well, maybe the philosophy is that Bud Black is not going to move the needle any more than 20 other available managers that you could have. That, yes, a manager makes a difference, but there's a lot of them. There's a lot of potential managers out there. And so there's no need to spend uh, any more than you have to to get the guy that you want because the guy that you want second is probably just about the same. Yeah. So it's the the opti- uh, the uh, the generous way to receive this is that yes they believe the second uh, but um, the less generous way is to think that they're just completely out of touch and nuts does it surprise you that at all that bud black is apparently so in demand that he was well that he was one team's first choice and that he might now be another team's first choice and a and a very uh, smart and rich team's first choice is there anything about Bud Black that yells uh, elite manager to you? I always found it somewhat amazing that he hung on in San Diego so long. I mean, that was a pretty unsuccessful run for the for the team. Yeah. And whether they could have done better or not, who knows? Uh, but uh, like normally, managers don't get to hang around that long right. without winning anything. Yeah, and, that, well, and that was his first job. And it wasn't just yeah. that; it was that he survived like three regime three own- changes, exactly. Owners yeah. like four owners, maybe, and and three GMs or something. It was crazy. That never happens, and so that to me says that he must be good at something. And maybe he's just good at talking to GMs and owners, but he must have been doing something to be respected, so respected in the organization that the new GM would feel like he couldn't bring in his new guy or didn't want to bring in his new guy. So I assume that's a positive reflection on what he did there. And I don't know, he shows up as one of the best managers in various statistical measures, which may or may not be the most important thing. But when I did my recent look at bullpen management and tried to figure out who the best bullpen managers are, but Black was the best bullpen manager and when Russell Carlton has done manager stuff on like preventing fatigue down the stretch, he has found Bud Black to be the best manager. So there are at least some studies that back up that reputation. So not really surprised, no. Okay, really not really surprised. I mean, the one that you're the one you you give the example of Russell Russell's piece for instance, is uh, is a really interesting one, and that's one of the the reasons that you could see a team today really wanting him if they buy that uh, research and that concept. But does it? I mean, it doesn't surprise you that he hung on in San Diego for nine years. I mean, they certainly oh, it definitely did. does. Oh, that okay. anyone could do that, but the fact that he did do that, it makes me think that he should be in demand because he must yeah. have been doing something well. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Exactly. That's that's kind of how I feel too. Like if if. Like, it might be the most significant uh, how your previous regime uh, liked you and supported you and ultimately how they, they canned you in some cases. The the manner in which they do it might be the most significant data point about any manager. Like, more than manager wins, more than playoff success, more than what we perceive to be their tactics, more than how often you hear about uh, drama in the clubhouse, more than manager of the year voting, which by the way, I want to get into for a second, but um, more than any of those might just be like how how much your previous team was committed to you and whether, I mean, there is something about 
for instance, Dusty Baker being fired after a uh, world's essentially being fired after a World Series appearance in San Francisco. And then like that year, like that year he was gone and then getting uh, fired by the Reds. The Reds fired him, right? Yeah. Uh, getting fired by the Reds after like a 89 or something win season. Uh, those are both pretty like that. I always found that to be the the most damning part of Davey Johnson's career. Davey Johnson is like the the sort of stat head second favorite manager ever. Yeah. And yet it was always weird that teams would fire him like right after they won 94 games. Yeah. And and like he never had a losing season and never stuck anywhere for that long. And uh, Bud Black doing the opposite is is uh, seems like a pretty impressive thing mm-hmm. and maybe a very telling thing. Yeah. But man, oh man, like they didn't do anything <laughs> under him. Yeah. Like nine years, nine years, he basically had two years where they were any good at all. One of them is when he inherited an 88-win team and they won 89 but didn't make the playoffs. And then one was a year where they had this crazy out-of-nowhere blip good season and lost in the last weekend of the year. Uh, and wasn't that a collapse year in yeah. 2010? Yeah. I, those teams didn't spend much, so I guess no, you got to pass I, on, in that respect. Yeah, I, they didn't spend much, but... I, I mean, and I'm not saying that he could have done anything with them, it's, but it's really surprising to see a guy last that long. Yeah, they were up six in late August um, and ended up basically losing all of September yeah. and uh, lost on the last weekend uh, of the year. And, and even, uh, yeah, so I don't know. I mean, I guess, I guess we talk all the time about how results get uh, overemphasized, mm-hmm. and so it, it's pretty you you could applaud san diego for not responding to results and you can like i said you can really draw a lot of of good encouraging things from the fact that bud black was able to keep that job for so long despite the bad results it's very surprising is all not bad surprising yeah and the other thing is that we think we really know dusty baker well because he has a long track record as a manager but you never totally know what a manager is going to be like with a new team because maybe it'll be an old dog picks up new tricks sort of situation like Clint Hurdle with the Pirates. Or, as we said, maybe he'll respond differently to a different group of players. And what the manager says is not necessarily what the manager does. I mean, when the Nationals hired Matt Williams, and that was a little different situation because he hadn't managed before, so we didn't really have much to go on. But he sounded like he was going to be a stat head manager. He said things about how much he liked stats and how much preparation he put into these things and he hired a a guy away from Arizona to be a defensive coordinator for the Nationals so that they could do lots of shifts but then they did fewer shifts than anyone pretty much over his two-year tenure with the team so you never totally know what the manager is going to be like in a new situation until he starts all right uh, the last thing is I want to talk about manager of the year voting for Dusty Baker uh, because I once looked at manager of the year voting points between him and Bruce Bochy. And Bochy, even when Chris Jaffe wrote his book, rated extremely high by Jaffe's measures. Like he was like the 30th best manager of all time, even though that was before he had won anything with the Giants. So this was just his relatively eh Padres career. And 
I think Bruce uh, Bochy at that point had like a seventh place manager of the year finish and nothing else. And Baker, essentially every time his team finishes over 500, it he gets a top three manager of the year finish. Like, <laughs> like that's all he has to do is just finish over 500. And he ends up in the top three in manager of the year voting. It was like it, he it was a sort of a uh, like Ryan Howard MVP vote kind of a thing uh-huh. where like Ryan Howard as long as he as long as he played he would for a long time he would finish high in MVP voting mm-hmm. uh, so I wonder I will be very interested to see whether that um, that holds on because uh, it's a different voting pool and Dusty Baker is he doesn't have the same charisma like I I will it'll be interesting to see how Dusty Baker. Uh, in winter does it'd be great i actually would love it if he uh were extremely successful with the nationals and became kind of like a legendary old dude because i think dusty baker was really fun as a young dude like he was a like he was a great manager in his 40s who uh i think that's one of the reasons every like he got so much manager of the year support is that he was fun he was charismatic he was confident you got the feeling that he loved everybody. Like there was a love there. Like he loved his players. He loved it all. And you just really like you loved him back. Like Dusty Baker was a great, lovable manager. And if I could hire a manager from any time period, early mid '90s, Dusty Baker might be like one of the 20 or 30 guys I would put on my list. And that, <laughs> not six or seven. But then middle, but then middle-aged Dusty Baker kind of went through a sort of a funk it seemed to me like it it wasn't that it seemed like he now was kind of uh, sort of uh teetering between disgusted and amused at everybody at the world at sabermetrics at young people at the questions that were asked about him at the fact that he was getting fired from jobs even though he was winning the fact that the cubs in his view the front office tore down that team and didn't leave him with anything he could win with and I don't know, there was, th- this happens, right? Like there's a middle age for every career where guys lose their fastball. You know, I'm thinking like, you know, Dylan in the 80s or something, you know, every, like. Everyone in the 80s. Every. Everyone, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> everyone in the 80s. But like, especially Dylan, like Dylan from like 75 to like 96 was just sort of the saddest thing. And you could maybe say Johnny Cash for that, that same rough era. And then. And then there's a thing that happens to, to, to you when you get old. You know, the, like that old expression about buildings, politicians, and prostitutes. If they, if they're uh, once they get old enough, they all become respectable. Mm-hmm. And I would love Dusty Baker to emerge from this as a kind of a patriarch of the game, as a uh, like as a as a wise old man, as a uh, as a person who can kind of have a a different sort of laid back love and joy in his life. And so I will, uh, I'll be rooting hard for him uh, just for that. Yeah. Well, he's in the perfect situation to take advantage of a bounce back. I mean, it's the same thing we say about every hitting coach who's fired after a team that's supposed to be good at hitting is bad at hitting. He just has to be there and the regression will come and he'll get credit for it. I mean, the same thing applies to Dusty Baker. You can't really do a worse job than Matt Williams, or at least the than Matt Williams was perceived to have done. And you can't really underachieve by much more than the Nationals did under Matt Williams. So if you can just get through this next season without 
the clubhouse completely falling apart, which is evidently what happened this season. And if the Nationals are a contender at all, then he will be celebrated probably. He probably will get those manager of the year votes just for being there when that happens and not actively sabotaging it. Yeah, you're right. I would bet almost anything that he is a top three MVP, uh, not MVP, uh, M-O-Y vote yeah. getter next year. Yeah, it's I will, very likely. <laughs> oh, bummer. I was hoping you'd say, no, Sam, you're an idiot. <laughs> and I will bet you right now. <laughs> no. Anyway. All right. So the last thing, just briefly, I, I wanted to bring this up last week and didn't get a chance to, but when Ken Rosenthal wrote a story about trends in managerial hiring, and I thought he made some good points and some points that I thought didn't quite land, but he he said, you know, if you're a minority, a minor league manager, or a longtime major league coach, you probably can forget about managing. And if you're an analytics-minded Ivy League graduate, you've got the inside track to becoming a GM. The latter still seems true, but since this article came out, there have been three managerial hirings, and they are, you know, Dusty Baker, minority and experienced manager, Don Mattingly, former manager, and Andy Green with the Padres, who is a minor league coach and major league, or minor league manager and major league coach. So those would seem to contradict the idea that you can only get hired if you're Scott Service and you're buddies with the GM. I, I think he did make good points about the fact that, you know, when you have a very non-minority front office, which is sort of a, a problem that baseball is trying to correct, kind of, I guess, then you will have the same problem probably in the dugout because, you know, GMs tend to hire someone they've known forever or something, and that person is probably more likely to have the same demographic background as that person. But, you know, it, it seems like if you were going to hire a manager right now, and as Rosenthal acknowledges, like if you're Jerry DePoto and you've just been through the Mike Sosha experience, why would you want to do anything other than hiring a guy who is not an entrenched manager, who doesn't already have this power accrued, and who is not going to fight you? And you know that because you've worked with him in the front office before. I mean, it seems like it would be hard not to make that choice. And as Rosenthal acknowledged, there are other guys who don't really fit his thesis, like Jeff Bannister and Paul Molitor and Kevin Cash and Chip Hale. These are all coaches. And Pete McCannon, the Phillies' new manager, all fit this sort of old-school mold or guys who paid their dues to get there. So I don't know that I buy that the manager who is just buddies with the GM is really a pervasive thing. We've talked about the trend toward former players who have not been managers and how that seems to have backfired in some cases or not had great results. So that seems like a real trend, but it seems like there is still a place in baseball for the experienced manager or the guy who paid his dues. And Dusty Baker is the ultimate experienced manager. He's 66 and he's managed for many years. So I don't know that I would hire someone with that background if I were a GM, but maybe if you go through the Matt Williams experience and you see what can happen when you hire a guy who hasn't done it before, then you just want to go completely the opposite end of the spectrum, which is how managerial hirings and firings always seem to work. 
Mm, yeah. Okay. So you can send us emails at podcast at baseballperspectives.com. Join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild. And rate and review and subscribe to the show on iTunes. Please support our sponsor, The Play Index. If you want to do any impromptu play indexing, as Sam did earlier in this episode, use the coupon code BP when you subscribe to get the discounted price of $30 on one year subscription. We will be back soon. <laughs>